worshiping with us this morning. Uh, hopefully, maybe you can hear from my voice. I'm not um, 100%, but uh, that's all right. We uh, uh, need to play wounded sometimes. It's all right. That's good. Uh, just press ahead and, and march on through. Uh, but so just so you know, after the service, I'd love to, you know, um, get up close and personal, but I won't. All right. So uh, share a lot of things with you, but a little fist bump or whatever is good. And we'll, we'll go from there. If you're uh, worshiping for the very first time with us, we're just grateful for your presence with us uh, on the bulletin that you should have received, either when you came in or there's one on the welcome table as you come in. There's an additional fold on that bulletin. And if you have a chance, if you have a pen or you can find one, you can fill that out. And then the offering box is on that welcome table as well. That way we have a record of your attendance and uh, we can uh, make contact with you or get information or you can share with us things you want us to be praying about or something that you have a need for. And that little fold is also for those who've been here regularly, okay? So I receive those uh, sometimes and people share prayer requests and we, we commit to pray for those as well. So we're grateful for the opportunity to do that. Also, I just wanted to um, say that there are some things going on where I think our Haiti team, uh, the, the last of our Haiti team is en route, uh, as far as I know. Uh, Norb, is that right? Uh, JR, and, JR and Debbie are, they're, yeah, they're, they're in, en route, but Norb and Karen got home on Friday. And I also have a little bit of uh, uh, sad news. Uh, Aaron and Kara, this is your last Sunday with us, is that right? No? Two more Sundays? Two more Sundays, okay. So you, you might want to get up close and personal with Aaron and Kara because uh, they're, they're making the move uh, back home to uh, Alabama. Yes, get it right. I don't want to offend them. So anyhow, uh, I think that's all the announcements. I have lots of stuff on the bulletin. Please be in prayer for those that you know need prayer. Good to see you, Brother Ken. Uh, glad to have you with us worshiping again this morning. And uh, I know that... Uh, we, we had uh, Gail Hoyce was in uh, the first service this morning, and Paul is uh, um, at this Independence Village out in Waukee. Keep him in your prayers, and Gail in that situation. Okay, I need to pray, so if you join me for that, I would appreciate it. Father in heaven, uh, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness, as we just sang about your faithfulness to us, Lord, is, is, is new every morning. And I thank you for that faithfulness. And I pray that you, Heavenly Father, would work in our hearts through the Word of God to accomplish your purposes, which you promised that you'd do. That your Word would not go forth void without accomplishing that for which you sent it. And so we pray to that end, asking that you'd open our hearts and our minds to the truth, that it might enter into our hearts and transform our minds and change us so that we might be the people you want us to be. That you draw those who are, are listening this morning who may have never fully surrendered their lives to Christ, that they would do that. And those who have committed their lives to Christ, that we might seek from the, the truth that you share with us to, to grow and mature and develop and to live more fully the profession of our faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since my son is a lawyer, I, I, was, I was thinking about the text that we were here uh, discussing this morning. And, you know, if you're in a court of law and uh, you've seen this maybe on TV or whatever, you know this just kind of intuitively, that in a court of law when the attorneys are, are questioning a, a witness and they, they 
have a line of questioning that the uh, other attorney says they didn't like, then the, they stand up and say, I object, Your Honor. And then they kind of give a little spiel about why they object to the, this line of questioning. And what's amazing is that the judge, without any explanation or without any hesitation, just can say, objection overruled. No questions asked, it's just that's the way it is. It's, uh, it's over, it's done with. Silencing the opposition. Well, as we come to the text this morning in, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he's been proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaimed the gospel, the importance of the gospel, the priority of the gospel, all right? And as he proclaimed the priority of the gospel, uh, his proclamation was generally met generally met by those in the Jewish community with irritation and indignation. Uh, they were in objecting to most of what Paul had to say. And his preceding indictment of uh, the Jewish people, which we looked at last week in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, along with a lot of other misunderstandings about what Paul was actually trying to, to share with them, were considered as an undermining of their Judaism, okay? They, they, they took offense at it because they thought he was undermining their, their faith system. And in the face of these serious objections to his teaching, uh, the wise apostle and engaged in uh, what we're going to see in this text is a little bit of play acting, okay? He kind of takes on the role of the, the accuser and the accused, and he goes back and forth. And so it's kind of a, the technical word is a diatribe, but he goes back and forth, imitating or playing that he's the, the objector and then going back and giving the answer to, to the argument, all right? But he did so to set the record straight and to, to restore confidence in his belief that he really did, was convinced that God was faithful, that God was truly righteous, and these were things that he was accused of, um, of undermining and disagreeing with. And so Paul didn't just proclaim Objection overruled. I mean, he could have done that, right? They were objecting. Nah, you guys are all wet. I'm, I'm done with you. No. Paul pointed out the objections, as we will see. And then he went on to prove them wrong through, through a, a dialogue with an, an imaginary objector. And so if you have your Bibles, you, you might open to uh, Romans chapter 3. And in Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, which is what we're going to look at, Paul answers three objections. In, in defense of God's just judgment of his people. And when I say his people, and in the outline it says his people, I'm thinking particularly of, of the Jewish people, the, the Jewish nation, the Israelites, okay? And he does this in, 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 in his defense. And so we're going to look at the answers. What I put in your outline are the answers to the objections, okay? Or that what I think are the definitive responses to his objections. I'm in Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to begin with verse 1 and read down through verse 8. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Uh, that's what's printed up there on the screen for you. If you have your device, or if you don't have a Bible, uh, under the seat uh, somewhere in front of you, there should be one nearby. In Romans chapter 3, then, what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. Okay, so the first is their question, the second is his response. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. 
Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, you have, uh, that you might be justified in your words and might prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who in, inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. And so we see uh, what I have laid out for you as the first response is that our God is firm in his commendation of his people, in his... his uh, his consideration that they are advantaged, all right? And there's two ways that we make this clear, and as you walk through the outline, it's not going to be too complicated, but you have to keep your eye on it because the same uh, phrases come back and forth. First of all, the objection is articulated. And so what's the objection that is presented to Paul in the first section here, verses 1 and 2? They're basically saying, did, did Paul's teaching eliminate favor on the Jews? Now, if you were with us last week, you could understand how they might come to that conclusion, particularly based on what he had just said. Because he was basically saying, you know, just because you're a Jew, uh, an ancestry, you know, ancestry lineage tied back to Abraham through Isaac, um, you're not safe from God's judgment. I mean, it need, you need to be a true Jew. You need to be truly circumcised. And so they're like, whoa, wait a second. So his objectors would argue. If being an ethnic Jew didn't protect us from judgment, which is what they would have understood, what, what he was saying in verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Well, and they're kind of rooting their argument in the scripture. Because if you went back, and we're going to look at a couple of verses, there are lots of other ones, but in Exodus chapter 19, in, in verse 6, it says this, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 to 15. And again, this is the Old Testament law. This is Moses. This is the Torah. Okay? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set his affection on your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you, after them, you over all the other peoples, as it is this day. Well, sounds to me like they're privileged people. And they're wondering, because Paul's saying, you know, just because you're an ethnic Jew, uh, you can still be judged because you aren't putting your faith or your trust in God, like Father Abraham and that our faith is based on righteous, our righteousness is based on our faith, not just because we belong to Abraham, which is Abraham's testimony in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. They thought that uh, Paul's denial of their guaranteed protection called God's faithfulness into question, his truthfulness into question. Was God going back on his word? Well, it had to do with their misunderstanding of what Paul was saying. And so then the objection is answered. 
with Paul's surprising declaration, because you might expect Paul to say, based on what he's just said in chapter 2, when they ask, what's the advantage of the Jew? You might expect him to say, no, there isn't any. That's not what he says. Not at all what he says. His surprising declaration that the advantage of the ethnic Jew is, and this is words right from Paul, if you look at verse 2, great in every respect. It's great in every respect. Well, great in every respect doesn't mean that the Jews exceeded the Gentiles in every advantage imaginable. But in whatever advantage they had, it was great. All right? It was, it was significant. Whatever, rather, it asserts the Jewish prominence and importance that is in every respect significant. Now, some of you are not football fans. That's okay. You'd have to bear with me, okay? But uh, one, of, one of my favorite football players is Brock Purdy, okay? Brock Purdy uh, is, is, it came out that he is one of only the second quarterback in NFL history to have three games where he had three or more touchdown passes and a passer rating of 140 or more in his first two seasons in the NFL. Now, that doesn't mean much to some of you. That's okay. What I'm, my point is this. That doesn't mean that he's the best quarterback in the NFL, right? It doesn't mean he has the greatest advantage. He's the, the best of all in every respect. No. But what it does mean is in whatever respect he is great, he is absolutely great. And so Paul is saying that the, the Jewish people, they don't far exceed the Gentiles in every advantage you could imagine, but in whatever prominence or importance they have, it is supremely great. And so he's going back. He doesn't, he doesn't mean that, that, that their advantage is wholly great, but whatever advantage they have is absolutely great. Being Jewish didn't bestow salvation automatically. But it brought many privileges that the Gentiles didn't have. And it's still true. It's still true. First of all, and then he introduces, first of all. That's what the text says. Keep your eye on the text. First of all, introduces the advantage of the first importance. The most important advantage the Jews had is they were given God's word. The oracles of God means his, his, his entrusted with his very word. And that God gave the Jewish people the, the alone, and them alone, to entrusted to them the glorious self-revelation that contained within it the promises of a coming Messiah. To reconcile the lost world, that was the most tremendous privilege and responsibility. And Paul's saying, look, they have a great advantage because they've been given God's holy word that testifies to his Messiah and it's a, a, an entr- a trust that's been given to help them spread this to the entire world. Um, and it, it's an amazing thing. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as the whole law which I am setting before you today? Answer, none. God gave it to them. God treasured, treasured truth was there. What was it there for? It was there for them to preserve. It was there for them to practice. It was there for them to proclaim the message of a Messiah to the entire world. Um, this, is the, this is that the nations be glad. 
They were supposed to carry this. In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. You can look at Psalm chapter 96, verse 1 through 3. That the nations be glad. That's what they were called to do. Sadly, Israel showed themselves fickle. And proved themselves unfaithful to this charge that God had given to them. And they magnified their human traditions. And they minimized the truth and they missed the Messiah. I want you to look with me at a couple of passages from the New Testament that, that bear this out. In Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, uh, Jesus speaking to the, to the religious leaders, he says, But he said to them, that's Jesus speaking to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he goes on. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine. Now get this. They taught as doctrines the commandments of men, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. What I just say, they, they minimized the truth and they maximized tradition. And then they missed the Messiah. In John chapter 5, verses tw- verse 29, uh, or verse 39, I'm sorry, John, uh, Jesus was saying to, to the Pharisees, he says, you examine the scripture, scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So they elevated the scriptures as that which contained eternal life. But then what does he say? But they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. The scriptures don't contain eternal life, they contain the truth of who it is that brings eternal life, which is the person of Jesus. And they missed Jesus. They had had the, the trust. Those closest to the truth were closed to it. And critical of, 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 of Paul. They were dull of hearing, okay? And, and dead in their hearts. They were critical of Paul who challenged their false sense of security because he condemned all, any and every Jew and Gentile who did not accept that salvation was by grace through faith and that alone. It's not your ethnicity. It's your faith that brings you into salvation with Christ. And so I'd, I'd say, it's not a matter of if you're a member of Creekside Church. It's not a matter of whatever church you belong to. It's not a matter of your traditions or your backgrounds or your ethnicity. If you're here this morning and you're listening this morning and you have never fully understood that you are a sinner in need of salvation because you deserve the wrath of God and you never turned from your own self-directed life and trusted in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, then you too are condemned. And all I can say is you don't have to be. If you would surrender your will and turn and trust in Christ, you could be saved from the wrath of God. That's the offer. That's the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first, and then to the Jew. Why to the Jew first? Because they had it first. But it's not just exclusively to them. Christians now, we have the Word of God. And there is a real danger that we might do exactly what the Jewish nation did before. 
And that is to take the Word of God and substitute the commandments for God, of God for the traditions of men. There's a danger that we would capitulate to denominational teachings and not the Word of God. Traditions of men and the, the, the press of the culture that we would accept that and not God's Word. And I just give you one example. I read and heard just recently of a, a, a major denomination. I'm going to not say it for the, uh, just for the sake of because it doesn't really matter what denomination is, but, but <coughs> excuse me, they would consider themselves Christian, a Christian denomination. And recently, it was one of their statements came out that said transgender people uh, may be baptized as, and then their denomination, you know, as a, you know, put it whatever you want to put. You can put Baptist, Catholic, uh, Lutheran, whatever you want to put in there. Uh, it might be one of those, but I'm not saying. Um, and then they, they, said, they said this. Uh, one of the leaders of the church, the, the primary leader of, of this denomination, said, could, could, we possibly, could we possibly bless same-sex couples? Because in that uh, tradition, in that denomination, they, they, they have re really defined marriage as between one man and one woman of the opposite sex and, and for life. But we might bless same-sex couples because that wouldn't be calling it marriage. You know, so we just kind of undermine the truth with, you know, fuzzy language. Folks, we've been given the Word of God. And the Word of God is that upon which we stand. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And this Word is our anchor. And whenever we deviate from what the clear teaching of the Word of God is, we're in danger of going the same way that the Jews who cut themselves off from God because they trusted in something other than in their Messiah. God is absolutely firm in his commendation of his people, the Jewish nation. He secondly, God is faithful in his covenant with his people. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Well, what's the objection? The objection is articulated. What then? It introduced this section, objection, which is this. I'm going to paraphrase what I think it would be. Did Paul teach that God was unfaithful to his promises? If God taught that ethnic Jews weren't secure, then what does he make of all the covenant promises to the people of Israel? Paul has just argued that being an ethnic Jew does not exempt one from judgment, but does have the distinct advantage of being entrusted with the word of God. The oracles of God contained promises, particularly the promise of blessing and rescue through the Messiah. All right? What then is the advantage to being a Jew if what they understood the promise to be that we're safe and secure because we're a Jew isn't really true? What then is the advantage of Jew if some individual Jews who don't believe the words with which they were entrusted are going to face judgment. How, how does that work? I thought God promised the Jews that they'd be safe. And Paul is saying, no, if an individual Jew doesn't believe, he's not safe. So does that mean that God's word is, 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 is null and void? Well, here's the deal. Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God to his covenant, will it? 
See, Paul's accusers thought that despite an individual Jew's unbelief, he was still safe, or she was still safe. I mean, it doesn't matter, because they're a descendant of Abraham, and God gave us these promises. And so, that made them, so they still, God covered them, okay? And, and made them ponder this. Can, can unbelief of some Jews nullify the faithfulness of God to his covenant? So if, if one or two Jews, are un, or many, are unfaithful to, to God, does that mean that God has thrown out the, the, the entire commitment to the Jewish people whatsoever? Now, I know I've used this example before, okay? But uh, because I'm old, I get these uh, letters because they think I'm going to retire and they think I have a bunch of money, which is, you know, it's, it's fine. They can think that. And they send me these letters and they give me a free, uh, they offer a free dinner, you know, at Johnny's Italian Steakhouse. Now, I've eaten at Johnny's once, okay? It's a very expensive place to eat. And you, all you have to do, if you, you, you can get this free meal, you know, at Johnny's Italian Steakhouse. Uh, but I've never gotten the meal at Johnny's Italian Steakhouse from the people who sent me this letter. Why? Well, because I never got the meal, does that nullify the faithfulness or the truthfulness of the people who are offering the meal? No. You have to meet certain conditions to get the meal, and I haven't met the conditions because I didn't believe that I should go, so I didn't go. That doesn't nullify the promise, simply because I didn't take advantage of it. The same is true. God never promised. Here's the deal. God never promised the individual Jews that they would be uh, safe just because they were a Jew. All right? God never made that promise to them that they were secure because of their physical descendants of, of, of Abraham through Isaac. Excuse me. Told you I was fighting, playing wounded. Uh, so they didn't do that. The only basis... The only basis for security in God's promises is through personal repentance and faith that results in heartfelt obedience. It's not just because he, he didn't just give a blanket carte blanche promise to all the Jewish people. He gave the promise to them first and he's still going to fulfill his commitment to them as a people. But it doesn't mean if some of them are unfaithful, he's, he's abandoned his commitment to them. At issue for Paul and his accusers, is the national salvation of Israel. Promised by God. And he said this, and we're going to get to it in Romans chapter 11. Uh, God affirms, God's word affirms that he has not rejected the nation of Israel. He's not rejected the nation. Okay. What then? God promised, he promised some other promises. You can go to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. He's promised, and it's not on the screen, you just write it down. What he's promised there hasn't happened yet. So if what God has promised the nation of Israel hasn't happened yet, one of two conclusions. Either God's lying, or it's still future. I'm going with number two. It's still future. It hasn't happened yet. God is going to, to fulfill it. It's not happened. So, and so this is Israel's rejection of the Messiah, guess what it did? Because the nation of Israel rejected it as a whole, not every one of them, but as a nation they rejected it, it just postponed the fulfillment of the promise. Okay, it postponed the promised redemption of Israel. But the unbelief of some Jews doesn't negate that promise or that it will be fulfilled. At least that's my understanding of it. So what's the objection? How does he answer it? That's the objection that God is, you know, <laughs> God can't do that. God's going to nullify his promise to the whole people if some people are unfaithful. No, not doing that. Here's the objection that's answered. Paul responded with the most emphatic denial possible. 
Uh, in the Greek, it is very, it, verse, it, he says it in verse 4, may it never be. Or God forbid. Or it's impossible. Would be all relevant translations. It's impossible that some entrusted with God's word, who refuse to trust in God's word, would thereby nullify God's trustworthiness to his word. It's impossible. Just because some people entrusted with the word don't trust in the word doesn't mean that God is not trustworthy to fulfill his word. And so Paul is doubling down. Even Paul's accusers would agree with that, that God's not going to be unfaithful, that he's ever true to his promises. But they did so based upon their faulty assumption that the individual who, who didn't believe would still be saved. God's Word never says that. God's Word never says that. And that Romans chapter 6 and 7 gets to it. I like the way John MacArthur kind of um, explains the error, and so I'm just going to quote what he said. I think he put it well. The national salvation of Israel is inevitable as God's promises are irrevocable. But that future certainty gives individual Jews no more present guarantee of being saved than the most pagan. Just because God promised to save the nation doesn't mean that every individual person who is a descendant of Abraham through Isaac is going to be saved. That some Jews refuse to believe never nullifies God's faithfulness to his promises that all Israel will be saved. Rather, this is the text now back in in, in Romans, rather let God be true and every man a liar. If every human being lies through their teeth, guess what? God is true to his word. He is always true to his word. God remains faithful to his person. He remains faithful to his proclamation. And he remains faithful to his promises. And you know what? That's, that should be encouraging. You say, well, you're talking about the Jews. What about me? I'm not. Well, his promise to the Jews is faithful. His promise to all of his people, meaning believers, is just as faithful. He's not going to back down. He's not pulling away. As it is written, and Paul kind of trumps it, he kind of proves his point, by quoting David in Psalm chapter 51, verse verse 4. He introduces a proof of his faithfulness, and David said, Against you and you only have I sinned. Oh, David's acknowledging he's a sinner. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. What's he saying about God? God's blameless. God's just. He's faithful to his promise. He's not backing away. David's confession served the purpose, if you look at the text here in verse 4 of Romans 3, that in order that God might be justified in his words and prevail when, he ju- when he's judged. Okay? Uh, what does it mean to prevail? Victorious. He wins. Okay? So, God is just when he judges and then when he is judged, guess what? He wins. He's always faithful. He's always true. Um, a couple weeks ago, or last week, not this Saturday, but last Saturday, uh, one of the Iowa State football players got a kickoff return, and he ran the kickoff return, and ran down the sidelines, and the, the, one of the officials called him, said he stepped out of bounds. And so they blew the play, uh, blew the whistle and called the play back, and they had to start there. Guess what? <clears throat> All the video evidence shows that he didn't step out of bounds. And so when that official made the judgment that he was out of bounds, he was out of bounds. 
The judge is out of bounds. And guess what? Everybody who looks at what the official did can say the judge is out of bounds. The exact opposite is true with God. Whenever God makes a call, it's the right call. And whenever you question the call, guess what? He's right, you're wrong. He's right, I'm wrong. God will never prove unfaithful to his promises. Not just to his people, the Jews, but to his people, believers. And folks, we live in tumultuous times. Crazy times. Times in which we wake up and we go, is this really happening in the world in which I live? And it is a, should be, a comfort to us all that God is faithful. In the end, guess what? We win. We win. So that's, that, 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 that's the, that's, that what we need to cling, cling to. And finally, uh, we see that in the text, in verses 5 through 8, that God is fair in his condemnation of his people, the, the, the Jews who don't, don't repent. So there's, there's several factors that lead us to this conclusion. First of all, and again, you see it repeated again, the objection is articulated. And what's the objection? The objection that comes up is that God is unfair to punish the Jews, wickedness, when, and now this is according to the erroneous understanding of Paul's teaching, when he, when God benefits from and therefore must support their rebellion. See, this is what they understood Paul to teach. That if we're wicked, and then our wickedness makes God look better, oh, then how can he judge us for being wicked? Because we just made him look good. And Paul is addressing that error. The conclusion is, what shall we say? Again, Paul's going back and forth, pretending he's the objector, and then he's coming back and answering it. That, that we should, so we say that God's wrath is unfair because God condoned rather than condemned sin that was repulsive to Paul, that he apologized for it by saying, I'm, you know, the, 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 fact that, okay, the fact that God's wrath is unfair because God condoned rather than condemned sin, that thought was so repulsive to Paul that he goes, uh, I'm telling you, I'm just making this up from human logic. I'm just, the text says, I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, the thought that God would be unfair and, and that God would want to condone sin so that he would look even better is like absolutely abhorrent to Paul. And this is what they were saying that he was saying. And he said, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm speaking in human terms. He was repeating what they had said about him. Okay. And the objection that is answered. He punctuates his rejection of God's inequity with this emphatic, may it never be. Did you see that before? Verse 4, may it never be. God forbid. This is impossible. It's impossible. It's absolutely abhorrent. It's crazy to think that, that God is unfair for, for judging people because their wickedness makes him look better. Silliness. It's, it's silliness. I mean, okay, if, if a student, if I'm a teacher, and I have students in my class that are doing, like, terrible, should they keep doing terrible so I look like I'm a better teacher? Well, no, that's, that, that, that's, that's, that's silliness. It's silliness. And, but am I unfair if I fail the people who don't do the right work? No. 
It's not my problem. It's their problem. Well, this is the argument. For otherwise, how can God judge the world? The Jews said God's going to judge the world, but if God is unjust, then how can he judge the world? Can't. He's got no ground to stand on. If God condones sin, he can't judge it. It's impossible for him to do that. They expected him to judge it and judge it justly. And if, how can he do that if he's sanctioning sin? And you know, I hope you understand the logic. It's, a, it's complicated, so don't, if you get lost in here, believe me, I've been working in this text all week, and it's kind of lo- easy to get lost. But the, the thought is, is God unfair if by my sin he looks better and he judges me? No, the problem is not with him. The problem is with me. Uh, and, and so God would, would cease to be God and not the final judge or just judge if he was really unrighteous. And so Paul's saying, no, that's a stupid, stupid thing. And the idea that God was an unjust judge is then rephrased and reiterated in verse 8. And the objection is then now revisited. So here he is, Paul, in verse 8, impersonating the objector. And he says this, and, and why not say? I mean, why not just go ahead and say? And then he gives this parenthesis. As some slanderously say that we do say, well, let's do bad stuff so God looks better. I mean, hey, if my doing bad makes God look good, then I should just do more bad because then God looks even better. Uh, Wrong. That's not the way it works. He, he, so, so God is, 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 it's not how it's supposed to, that's, it's, a, it's a misrepresentation. How fair is it for God to judge and condemn those whose lies result in his glory? Look at verse 7. Uh, but through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? If it's true that by God, my lie, God is lifted up, which is a perversion, why am I still being judged? How fair is it for God to judge me if my sin results in his glory. Then we go to verse 8. Paul's accusers wrongly held that the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, eliminated the law and promoted sin. See, that's what Paul taught. It's not by keeping the law that you're saved. It's by grace through faith in Christ that you're saved. So they said, okay, he's throwing out the law. And he's saying that our sin, where sin abounds God's grace superabounds. We're getting there in chapter 6, chapter 5. So shall we just sin more? Because it makes God look even better? God forbid. No, we can't do that. That's not how it works. They slanderously reported that Paul taught, if through our evil, this is verse 8, God's goodness is magnified, let's do more evil. So we can further magnify God. Okay, parents. So should your, your children rationalize, hey, if I do more stupid stuff, it's going to really make my parents look like righteous parents. Oh, that's a great idea. No, it's not a great idea. It's a wrong idea. We, we, don't, make God, we don't make God look better because we do more sin we don't make our parents look better because we are more disobedient that's not the point the slanderous teaching deceives people 
into being reinforced in rather than repenting of their sin. And so Paul's arguing against what they thought he was teaching. He wasn't teaching that at all. He wasn't teaching that at all. And then the objection is rebuked. Uh, the end of verse 8. How does he re- rebuke this objection? He just says, uh, the Lord's condemnation on them is just. Uh, they're going to be judged, and it's a just judgment. End of discussion. That's all he said. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we need to learn the importance of declaring and defending God's word, the gospel, against misunderstanding and misrepresentation that impugns the character of God, the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God. Our God is firm in his commendation of his Jewish people. Our God is Faithful to his covenant promises. Our God is fair whenever he judges. And to think otherwise or to teach otherwise is wrong. Okay? And that should be a comfort to us as as believers. Secondly, we need to lean into the fact that all of God's promises to his people are firm. When he says that Jesus is coming back, uh, Jesus is coming back. And when he says that all the world will be judged, all the world will be judged. Not on the basis of what they do, but on the basis of who they are. Are they, now we are going to be judged on the basis of what we do too. I know that, okay, so don't, uh, but not ultimately for our salvation. Our salvation is based upon whether or not we're trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross as the payment for our sins. And if we trust in that, then our sins is removed as far as the east is from the west. But if we don't, then we will be judged along with all of those unbelieving Jews. That's a promise. So we need to learn the gospel and speak and speak and defend and declare the gospel. We need to lean in to the promises of God that he has given to us. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never fully surrendered your life and and said, yes, I am a sinner and I deserve God's judgment, but I, I... but now I, I see that it's through faith or trust in Jesus. What he did on the cross, he, he died for me. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did he do that? Because we deserve to die. He did it in our place. And if we put our faith or our trust in what he did for us, then we are freed from the wrath of God, reconciled to God, and we'll spend eternity with him and escape his wrath. So trust Christ. And as we close the service, we look at these symbols and they reiterate God's promise that our righteous judge made provision to satisfy his wrath against sin by pouring out his judgment on his righteous son. So those of us who are unrighteous might become righteousness in him. And it cost our Savior his life so that we could be saved. And as we take time to meditate, let us reflect on that price that was paid. Humble ourselves and then rejoice in what Christ did for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's commitment to articulate and defend the gospel. I thank you, Father, for your firm commendation that the Jewish people do have an advantage. I thank you 
for your faithfulness to your covenant. The gospel of salvation, the promise of a Messiah that will come to the glory of God, the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And that I thank you that you are a God who is so committed, faithful in your judgment, in righteous, not unrighteous. Help us to appreciate what you've done for us and who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.